0: And welcome to another edition of Across the County. I'm Noah. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, I'm really excited about my next guest, somebody I was introduced to on the James Cooley It's Your Life radio show that I produce. and I had to have this guy on my own show because I think he's one of the best individuals uh, when it comes to talking and seeing things clearly with what's going on in the world and how we can move forward. So we're going to talk about a lot of different things today, but my guest is Chief Godby Jr. And I've wanted for some time to do a show that talked about a message that one, is very pro-cop. I'm very pro-law enforcement. And two, talks about what's really going on in America, also here in Southern California, of course, with the push to defund the police, which in my mind, the police departments, let's face it, are part of the backbone in defending America and keeping this country safe, just like the military. So I turned to Chief Godby Jr., and he climbed the ranks in the Detroit Police Department. And after 22 years of service, He attained the rank of the chief of police in Detroit, and uh, the kicker is he was only 42 when he did it, making him the youngest police chief in Detroit Police Department history, which is very impressive. And also impressive, in 2018, Godby was appointed as chief of police of the Detroit Public Schools Community District, and I'll say a little bit later on why that's important to me. And then since about the year 2000, he began serving in ministry to serve as a chief of staff at Triumph Church, and that's very, very important. We're going to get into that as well a little bit later on. It's a family man, a father, a grandfather, and 53 years young, Chief Godby Jr. Welcome to the show, my friend.
1: Noah, I am just delighted. I've been looking forward to this day with tiptoe anticipation.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, we were talking a little bit off the air. We both needed that long holiday weekend. So I'm glad you're relaxed and we're ready to go.
1: Absolutely, and thank you for having
0: me. Uh, it's an honor. Well, it's uh, my pleasure. Well, we spoke on the It's Your Life radio program with James Cooley. We both loved James tremendously, and I was introduced, yes, to, introduced to you. And you spoke from the heart. You spoke with clarity. You spoke with a guided moral compass, things that I think are tremendously important in today's day and age. And I was seriously impressed with how you looked at and had solutions for life, the, the life that we're all currently living. Tell us why those things are important to you.
1: Well, they're very important to me. Uh, I've, uh, I grew up on the Detroit Police Department. I joined when I was 19 years old. And the lens by which I see things is framed from a couple of different aspects. Uh, first, I love my chosen profession. I was blessed uh, to rise to become uh, a major city chief of police uh, which is an honor and an experience that, uh, you know, bar none, uh, as a pinnacle of my policing career, but also I'm an African American male, uh, in the uh, United States of America. I love my country. Uh, however, I am disappointed in some of our people and how we handle conflict, how we handle uh, racial animus and how we interact with, um, communities of color from a policing standpoint and marginalized communities. And I, it is my desire, uh, to have, you know, just very honest forthright, but conversations that are much more nuanced than just simply the melanin in somebody's skin or the lack thereof. Uh, I think the issues go much deeper. I think ostensibly, when given a form to do so, uh, reasonable people can agree on better ways to interact on both sides of the fence. Uh, That's the policing side, and that's the community side. And also, you know, Noah, I feel a profound obligation at this point in my life uh, to tie that into uh, an aspect of ministry. Uh, I'm an unashamed Christ follower. I've been in ministry uh, since the year 2000, and uh, full-time ministry is now my life. Uh, and there was a time where I thought that I was either one or the other, uh, but through circumstances, some good, some bad, uh, God had to show me that, uh, they are inextricable. Uh, and I have an opportunity, a very unique opportunity to give people insight into a career that, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, at any given time you have 800,000 to a million people occupying positions out of 350 million people in this country with a responsibility for law, order, uh, justice, uh, and ethical policing. Uh, so, uh, Noah, when we had the conversation, you and I, we had, uh, I mean, just very intriguing, uh, conversation back and forth. And what I appreciated so much, Noah, not only about meeting James and Michelle, um, and you was that we did talk about it in a nuanced way and not just a high level finger pointing, you know, you're either for the police or you're against them. You're either a community person or you're against them. Uh, we didn't label each other. We didn't uh, do any of those, um, very pejorative things that we see, uh, in these clickbait type environment. Uh, so Noah, I am just, you know, uh, I'm just absolutely delighted. Uh, to have a chance to talk to you and your audience today uh, for them to have, you know, listen in on just a conversation. I don't even consider the interview. Uh, I met three friends that day that uh, we have so much more in common than we'll ever have um, that is not in common. Uh, and to be able to model to people a dialogue that is respectful, that uh, looks at different perspectives, but also looks towards solutions. And Noah, I'm sure, you know, in your chosen field, um, you know, you hear a lot of talking heads and you hear a lot of uh, analysis of what a problem is. Uh, But, you know, people that really succeed in life and people that leave a legacy are those that come up with solutions. And that's what I appreciate with the conversation. With, you know, we talked about solutions.
0: You have to have solutions and you have to be able to work together. And if you're constantly at each other's throats, if you're constantly saying, hey, no, it needs to be this way. No, it needs to be this way. And, you know, I'm I'm 100% pro this. I'm 100% pro that. And you can't meet in the middle. Nothing Absolutely. is going to get done at the end of the day. You're going to have a stalemate and the community is going to be worse off for it. So why do you think, I'm very curious. This is the question in my mind, Chief Godby. Why are honest discussions so hard to have? If we want to all make a better place, why can't we just kind of not be so stubborn and sit down together as individuals and work this thing out?
1: I think we lost a bit uh, of our morality from the standpoint of um, we have stopped being umpires calling balls, balls, and strikes, strikes. And we put on the jersey of our political affiliation. And now we're situ we are situationally ethical. We're situationally moral based on what direction, um, our political leadership gives us. And I look forward to getting back to a time where the community and the ethos of the community drove the political decisions as opposed to the political, um, establishment really telling us how we ought to think on particular issues. I, in a perfect world, be totally honest, as an African-American male, I'm probably a lot more conservative, um, get, you know, that people would think. Um, but there tends to be a, you know, a labeling of people. And I think we have to get away from the labeling and get back to, you know, right is right. Wrong is wrong. Uh, appreciate what's legal. But if what's legal is not ethical, then having the, the spiritual courage and the intestinal fortitude that challenge our thinking and also to be able to be empathetic and sympathetic towards a plight of other people. Uh, am I my brother's keeper Noah? Absolutely. And we have to get back to that type of feeling uh, in this country. Uh, I, you know, it's ironic that uh, September 11th, the anniversary is coming up this Saturday and as children, Tragic as that day was Noah, I can remember exactly where I was exactly what I was doing, exactly how I felt. But one thing that I long for is in the minutes and the days and the hours, the weeks and the months, and even maybe a few years after that seminal moment in world history, we weren't black. We weren't white. We weren't Democrat. We weren't Republican we were not um, liberal or conservative for a period of time. We were Americans and we, 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 we codified around a tragedy, but it showed how strong we can be when we are truly one nation under God. Um, we are so polarized now and I'm going into our corners and we're unwilling to have conversation in any relationship, whether it's your spiritual relationship, um, your a relationship with your children, your relationship with your neighbors, your spousal relationships—all hinge upon healthy communication. We communicate. And Lord knows, we hide behind Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and we get a lot of false courage and, and, and vibrato behind those things. But to have honest conversation on on the phone, like you and I are doing, exactly, uh, and really to talk and to hear tone and tenor and. Um, to take the time to hear, and, not, and when I say hear, not just listening to respond, but noah listening to understand, and that's what I was so impressed by uh, in, in meeting you, and why I was just excited about an opportunity for our conversation to expand, uh, because you ask questions, which is a journalistic, you know, uh, staple, but you took the time to listen to understand. The level of empathy, the, oh, wow, I didn't look at it from that point of view. We need a whole lot more of those, oh, wow, moments,
0: Noah. Amen. And I have to agree with you there because I'll tell you, you know, I've worked in journalism and broadcasting industry for well over 20 years. It doesn't seem like that long when I think about it, but I'm like, my goodness, I'm getting old. And... I don't think of these as interviews, whether it was on, you know, James' show and the three of us are talking to you, whether it's on my own show. I like what you said at the beginning of the show, which is this is a conversation. I'm looking at this as a one-on-one conversation with a great American that other people can kind of peer into, see, listen to the conversation and learn from it. On the other side, what you just mentioned was something that I long for. Yeah, nine eleven, don't get me wrong, was mm-hmm. absolutely one of the most horrific events in this nation. But yes. for about six months to a year, we were all Americans. There was no yes, we were. there was no color, there was no gender, there was no Republican, there was no Democrat. We were just patriotic Americans working together. I long for those days.
1: Yes. I, I, I could not agree with you more, Noah. But, you know, I'm an eternal optimist. I could not be a Christ follower and not have hope and faith that there is a better way. Um, And, you know, as fancy as we can get, as educated as we can get, it really boils down to, you know, having love one for the other, um, esteeming others more highly than yourself, and then living by the principles of Christ. You know, Noah, even if you are not a, a, a religious person or You're not a Christ follower. Uh, The principal tenets of Christianity and the valuing of other people, the um, belief that you have a profound moral obligation to look out for the least and the left out and the left behind, uh, being hospitable to your neighbor, um, uh, esteeming people's property and, and values and views, um, these are things that even if you don't espouse to a particular religious dogma, uh, just the integrity of what Christ stood for, uh, if we followed those edicts, and uh, I, I think we, we, we could have much more collegial conversations. Um, and it bothers me that a lot of the animus that we see and we hear and that we're privy to is amongst people that proclaim a relationship with Christ. And I think we have to reimagine what that uh, relationship is like and get back to the basics and the fundamentals. It's not, um, it's not codified in a political party. Uh, nobody has a, 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 a monopoly on um, Christianity or a point of view. Uh, you know, in my biblical indoctrination, we've all seen to come short of the glory of God. So we all are works in progress. And I think the more introspective we become towards those things. And again, when I said earlier that I used to try to parse between my quote-unquote secular career and my, um, my, my pastoral duties. And, you know, my late grandmother used to say something, Noah, that uh, is very trite but true. It's a Southern uh, colloquialism. But she would always say anything with two heads is a monster. <laughs> and when you try to live two different existences and you don't take your ethics and your morality and that which is good and overlay that with your vocation, uh then what are we really here for? It's you true. know? Um so I uh, you know, I, I you know, I don't want to wax too poetic, <laughs> but um I I really uh I, I'm really optimistic. Uh I think we may be at a low point in race relations. We may be at a low point in just common courtesy and um decorum and how we treat each other in our in our politics. Uh but I, I do see it as a rallying cry as well uh for people of good moral character and and just belief in the right things. You and I can be on different political parties, and I don't know if we are or not. I haven't, you know, expressed what my party is. But we can agree that Murder is wrong. We can agree right. that um, discrimination is wrong. We can agree, agree on some very basic tenets of what's a good, ethical, and a moral society. We may disagree disagree on the methodologies to get to that pristine society. But We're marching towards the same goal.
0: That's right. And, you know, it doesn't matter what my political party is. At the end of the day, if I see you as a man of value, if I see you as a man of strong moral character, you can be part of any political party. And I'm going to value that relationship and the conversation.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, Noah, if we could get to that mentality, even in our voting, as opposed to, you know, I understand some of the arguments against eliminating straight party ticket voting. But for me, I've never been a straight party ticket voter. I haven't either. And, you know, and I can look at a ballot after the fact, and I may have very well voted straight party one way or the other. But I will never wholesale endorse, nor will I wholesale discount someone because of their political party
0: affiliation. I vote for I vote for principle at the end of the day, chief.
1: For principle and good people, mm. uh, because if you, I, I, you know, Noah, I would rather a good person that's ethical that has a line in the sand that they won't go beyond, that is guided by a a a, a, a religious ethical moral, than someone that aligns with me as a political party and they have the ethics of you know a garbage can. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, I just, you know, we just really have to get back to finding good people and then allow good people to make some movements within their lane uh, to help us put together a better society.
0: And speaking of finding good people, it takes really good people to make outstanding police officers. One of the reasons why I'm having Chief Godby on across the county is because he was just that for 25 years, uh, with just an amazing career, becoming the chief of police, the youngest chief of police in Detroit. So... Can you describe the realities of the life of a police officer? I know that maybe sounds a little bit generic, but in my mind, I get the sense that there's much that goes on in the daily walk of a policeman that the general public is not truly aware of.
1: No, that's an excellent question. And I'll start off from this foundational piece, and it'll be a bit of a story to kind of give context to exactly what you're talking about. Uh, I joined the Detroit Police Department, uh, was hired uh, and appointed May 18th of 1987. Uh, after going through a battery of tests and screening and background checks and physical fitness uh, assessments, uh, I was selected for the police academy. And one of those battery of tests was a psych- uh, psychological exam, one written, and then an interview with a, cl- a clinical psychologist. Passed it, joined the police department, and 20 20- Two years later, I was chief of police, retired after 25 years, and that was the only psychological exam I had had in my entire uh, police career. So I say that to say that what a lot of people don't realize about police work, and it's not germane to the Detroit Police Department in New York City, as a community of law enforcement officers, we see, unfortunately, the worst of human behavior. Mm. We're called out to the most tragic of situations that humans can encounter. And we do this with an expectation that we're trained. uh, And as a part of our training, that's just a part of the job. And we have been indoctrinated to make uh, what is really not normal for the brain to take in consistently. Uh, We've made that normal to an extent, but what people they see it as a manifestation of untreated trauma and police officers across the country. Um, we have high levels of alcoholism. We have very high levels of domestic violence. We have high levels of substance abuse. And think about that, Noah, from what an officer risks on the street daily to get drugs off the street, yet be subject to an addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, We have high rates of divorce. Um, You see a lot of, unfortunately, uh, extramarital affairs uh, among police officers. And it all goes back to a concept called trauma bonding. And when you have untreated, undiagnosed trauma, which I would suggest that a lot of police officers are subjected to, um, it causes for um, some aberrant behaviors. Now, there are officers that have tremendous resiliency and they have tremendous outlets for the trauma. Some are even wise enough to get treatment on their own, but that's more of the exception and not the rule, unfortunately. And you see those manifestations in a a, a, a plethora of different ways. Some are disciplinary. Some officers that started off pristine, um, have very poor attendance. Um, you see it in the, um, uh, uh, the uses of force and when I mean use of force not within the course of your duty but excessive force mm. use of force is a part of um, a, a police officer's job in proportion to a use of force continuum but in a lot of instances the overreactions and the um, excessive responses uh, are probably tied to a, a trauma issue that's unresolved in an officer and that's why I'm hesitant uh, to especially when you talk about an individual officer to jump directly to a racial motive or racialized motive, does it happen? Absolutely. Is it uh, a It certainly is. Should it not happen? it absolutely should not. But when you add you know the, the, the level of trauma an officer may experience or things that also may have been exposed to so losing a partner in a line of duty a partner being seriously um, maimed or injured or the officer surviving a very serious injury and coming back to duty. All of these things part and parcel play into the psyche of a police officer. And and then when you add to that, the stigma of mental health help, Hmm. Um, it's, it's a very difficult lift for law enforcement as an industry. Uh, to self-correct in some of the ways that people are trying to get
0: to with laws only. Excellent points. And mainly because I think our police officers in our nation, a lot of people view them as heroes. And so when something goes awry, whether it's something that looks like it's racially motivated or it's something that looks like any other third thing, there's obviously that initial reaction that, well, what the police officer did was wrong. Okay, maybe Yes, it was, Mm -hmm. but let's let's look at the why. Let's look at the why first before you pass total judgment on what actually went down. Absolutely.
1: Now, Noah, I have to say this, and some people get nervous about the term institutional racism or systemic racism, but I would invite people just to consider looking at systems because what we tend to do is when an officer goes out of bounds and does something that is completely aberrant And Derek Chauvin is probably the most vivid example that really shook the country to the core. When you try to remedy um, such deep social issues based off of the conviction of one person with an expectation that that's going to solve issues that are much deeper than that. um, I, I think we do a disservice by not examining systemically how things disproportionately may impact one race of people, one gender of people, um, a socioeconomic class of people, because then you start to look at holistic um, remedies, as opposed to everything being a punitive remedy.
0: That makes such, such great sense. And I, I thought I was perhaps the only American maybe thinking that. I was mm-hmm. like, how can you make so much emphasis was made on that trial? And no matter what the outcome was, it was like, OK, things are either go- going to improve and be better or we're going down a deep, dark path, which we can never recover from. And I'm like, right. guys, this is one trial. Some changes need to be made and other cases need to be examined for better or for worse if we're actually going to move forward in this nation.
1: You know, so if we don't examine systems and processes and and things that lead to these um, very explosive interactions, um, and and I'll give you an example, Noah, that is very crystallized, very simple, and when it happened to me, uh, it really gave me a different perspective. Um, in 2009, I was not with the Detroit Police Department. I separated for a short time. Uh, I retired. And uh, while I was away, I started my own um, private security business. Um, my client happened to be uh, Allen Iverson, the Hall of Fame basketball player, uh, who's probably most well-known for playing for the Philadelphia 76ers, uh, the Denver Nuggets, and he was traded to the Detroit Pistons. So he happened to be my first client. When he, uh, he made the all-star team, uh, in Arizona. I was with him the weekend he was there and I rented a vehicle and I was traveling, um, uh, uh, through the Phoenix, um, area. Uh, I was ticketed uh, because of a speed camera and that speed camera. And I didn't realize this until I was home for weeks and got uh, something in the mail from the rental car company explaining that they were going to add this extra charge to my vehicle. So I say that to say they gave me, I had an epiphany. The Hmm. most dangerous interaction that a police officer is believed to have, um, is a traffic stop. Hmm. And then you add to boot. If you add any issues of race or any other type of, um, uh, element to the mix, heightens the danger even that much more, not only for the officer, but potentially for the citizen.
0: Oh, sure. For both. Yeah.
1: So in this instance, that camera, it did an objective job. I was doing 75 in a 65. It captured my license plate. It cited me for the progression. A police officer's life was not jeopardized, nor was mine. And the, True intent of traffic enforcement is to correct the behavior of the driver. So I learned a valuable lesson that a lot of the things that we subject our citizens to, as well as our police officers, in any other industry, Noah, if we were in the auto industry and uh, our workers were dying on the line because of a manufacturing issue, if we were in the airline industry and uh, we had continual plane crashes because of the and you can go through a litany of different examples, we would make adjustments to our processes to make sure that we lessen the opportunity for those things to happen. Yeah. So there are ways to enforce the law impartially to get a desired result that takes some of that animus away, and it takes the police officer out of the position of even being accused of being racist, or it takes the citizen out of the position of they made a furtive gesture, and therefore I fear it for my life. Is that applicable all the time? Absolutely not. There are certain things that you need a police officer to make a stop for the person is drunk driving and in and out of traffic. There are certain things you cannot get get around, but by the same token, if you just use a, a a engineering mindset, you can re-engineer things to where you can lessen the likelihood of certain things that could be dangerous. So I think that's where we're missing an opportunity in law enforcement to take some of the um, social implications out and look at it surely from a safety standpoint. How do we make it safer for the driver? How do we make it safer for the officer? Yet we still have the same goal and we can accomplish the same things without the interjection of some of the um, the subject of things uh, that really cause distrust between police communities and police.
0: It should be, at the end of the day, what it is all about, what I always thought policing was about. It's about to be there for Protecting and serving to protect and serve,
1: absolutely. And I think police officers to an individual, for the most part, we all join with a very very noble intention. And police officers find themselves individually uh, somewhat pawns in a political, you know, debate that they're just there to do a job and to keep people safe. And sometimes you can be disillusioned by that when you become the political football of a particular party, you know, pro or against. And every decision you make is assessed through a political lens, as opposed to, are you doing your job as a police officer to protect and to serve? And are you doing it in an ethical and a moral way? That's respectful, respected, that respects the community that you're serving. Uh, if we can lower the temperature, utilize technology to take Subjectivity out as much as we can, and then we can start to narrow our, our, our the focus of our work to those very serious areas that would risk life. Um, I think we could really have a much different conversation and have a, a, a safer interaction and a different level of respect between communities and police, and particularly communities of color and disenfranchised communities, because people will like to narrow it to race. And disproportionately black people uh, have more contact with the police. But if you look at socioeconomic status, uh, that same uh, scenario is true for less affluent white people as well. And when you look at the total picture, Noah, in aggregate, there are more persons that are white that are killed by police than blacks. Disproportionately, there are more blacks that are killed. Uh, and that's a, that's a conversation that definitely has to be had, but this is a, this is a problem that goes and it crosses race. So if we can have the conversation in the right context, give context to why it's important to African-Americans because of the disproportionality, but also look at other issues that contribute to a situation where a police officer has to use fatal force. And what can we do to mitigate it across all racial spectrum?
0: I agree. And the police have to have the tools in order to do their job properly. I knew we were going to run out of time because this is such a deep discussion on so many different levels, Chief. So we're going to have you back on. But in the last 60 seconds to 90 seconds, I'd like you to maybe just give your thoughts. I know there's some people that have been thinking about, hey, well, we need to defund the police. That's the solution. They're not doing their job. I think we've touched a little bit on that in this interview. I don't think that's the solution. I think, yes, as you and I were just talking about with several Points, certain police reform needs to be made and across all social levels, not just, you know, for one particular minority, but so that we can get back to the basics of protecting and serving. Maybe expand on that just a little bit. And then I'd also like you to close with what you're doing as the chief of staff at Triumph Church, because I think as well, that's something that has such huge impact that we can take the implications of what you do into our daily lives.
1: Well, no, I was just going want to thank you for this opportunity. And just very briefly, and I, I do this with intentionality, uh, I argue the position of the on the police, but from a nuanced way. And number one, it creates a buzz because people have no expectation that a major city chief, current or former, would uh, try to articulate it. Okay. But it, it's not an either or, it's a both ends. And what I mean by that is there has to be serious reform. We are not at a point where we can take police officers off of the street. It's just, it's a transition. And if you look at what's going on in Afghanistan, when you have an immediate withdrawal and you don't have something to fill that vacuum, uh, it, it is going to be a horrendous result, but there has to be a view towards a transition of funding that goes more preventative. Than after the fact. So what I tell people is if you look at mental health, for instance, um, the LA County um, lockup is the largest mental health facility in the state of California. Uh, you can say that probably every major city across the country and we defunded those areas. So it's really a reallocation of resources to be preventative because a lot of the things that police get called out to do, have absolutely nothing to do with what a police officer is trained to do. So I use the analogy. If a hammer is the only tool you have in your tool belt, every problem becomes a nail and police have become that proverbial hammer. And we're not designed to be Swiss army knives. We have very precise skill sets that deal with major violent crime. And that's where our focus should be and keeping order as well. So that, so it's a much more nuanced conversation and terms get hijacked on both sides of the political spectrum. But so that's, that's my conversation starter. That's how I have the conversation. So when I talk of defunding, I talk about a reallocation allocation of resources, but from a strategic standpoint, it looks at a phase in after reinstituting things, you know, what prevent the police being called in the first place. And that's the optimal thing. Having a society where you don't need to call 911 to respond to a shooting, to respond to a domestic violence situation, to respond to a violent mental um, health issue, so, uh, ounce of prevention. Is worth a pound of cure.
0: I think that we, we would definitely, we're definitely going to dive into this deep next time I have you on yes. because I think also there's a huge difference, as you pointed out, between defunding and reallocation. I do think yes, that sir. things yes, definitely do need to change with how money is spent and how police officers are used. Yes, sir.
1: Then I'll end on this. The greatest joy of my life is the ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. And I'm just at a point of my life and, um, experience that I don't want to oversee a process of locking people up. It's necessary. It's a part of what we have to have in a civil society, but I'm at a point now where I want to do everything I can to rescue souls, um, and to have an impact on community and Triumph Church has given me the opportunity to do that. My pastor, Solomon W. I junior, uh, is one of the most dynamic, uh, young pastors in the country. Uh, we serve as a community of 35,000 members, um, and it is just a joy uh, to be a part of a ministry that gives back so much to the community through feeding programs, uh, housing, cars, uh, any social issue that affects the community. Uh, our church is right on the front lines with our sleeves rolled up, ready to serve our community. So uh, that's where I'm at in life. And... Uh, So I'm at a a rescue mode, whether spiritually um, or uh, physically, uh, that's where I'm at in life now.
0: I absolutely love it. And we'll get more into that next time as well. What's your favorite thing that you do? We'll close on this. As chief of staff of of the church, what's something that just brings you joy in that position?
1: I would say uh, the community giveaways. And when we um, we, uh, go through benevolent requests, or are able to help a family keep a home or um, get groceries or get their utilities cut back on uh, to bless someone with a vehicle to get back and forth to work. Um, I, you know, for me, I've been in ministry a long time and as a young minister, you love to orate and be an orator. Noah, if I never preach a sermon again, the sermon I live is the most important thing And If we can help people, uh, that's the most rewarding thing, It's just to see a person uh, have God manifest himself in their life uh, through the church. Um, I think that's what church is all about.
0: It's about legacy. Yes, sir. Well, Chief, it's been a pleasure having you on across the county. We are getting you back on because I didn't even get to half of what I wanted to talk to you about. So thank you for the time, man. I greatly appreciate it.
1: I appreciate you. I love you, my brother, and uh, keep you lifted in prayer. You do the same for me, and I look forward to part two.
0: I look forward to it as well. And you are always in my thoughts and prayers, sir. Chief Ralph Godby Jr., you're going to hear him here and across the county coming back at you here in a couple of months. There's so much to get to. We got to look through a clear lens. We got to come together as one people, because if we don't, our nation will not be better off for it. As we head into 9-11, we have to remember to come together as Americans. At the end of the day, that's what it's all about.